Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. In 1998, Hakeem Rahim, then a young man who was ultimately accepted into both Harvard and Columbia universities, began to experience the onset of his bipolar disorder, yet he was able to finish school. Today, he works as a mental health advocate. His story is inspirational, full of struggle, and yet full of success. He kindly agreed to talk to us about the road in his life. Thank you, sir, for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here with you. What was the more central problem as you began to know that something was wrong? Was it the sense that you had a problem psychiatrically, or was it overcoming the shame that you had some sort of problem and you couldn't fix it yourself? For a little bit more background, I attended Harvard in 1998 at 17 years old, and my first stop with mental illness was that fall of 1998, my freshman year. You're excited to go out meeting new friends and hang out for the first time, and boom, I had my first panic attack. I didn't know what to call it, but it was just terrifying. You know, sweaty palms, the room closing in on you, and really my first stop with mental illness was that fall. Terrifying. If anybody has ever had a panic attack for the first time away from home, my second stop was about seven months later when I had my first manic episode. I had it on campus. My parents picked me up and I came back to my hometown in Long Island, New York. And I was walking up and down the streets and I was stopping people, stopping people at the gas station, stopping people at the grocery. And I wanted to tell them this extraordinary insight I had about life was let your cereal get soggy for 10 minutes every morning. That that was a secret to the universe and a secret to all the ailments that you ever had. So I had to share with everybody, of course. My parents sent me to Grenada and there I plunged into deep depression after being manic for about two weeks. I came back to New York my sophomore year. There was a lot more ups and downs, highs and lows, anxiety, depression. And then it culminated at the end of my sophomore year in May of 2000 when I had another full-blown manic episode on Harvard campus. And I, I mentioned that I saw Jesus. I had a lot of visual imagery of God and devil and hearing cars talk. So a lot of audio and visual hallucinations, hearing the slightest movements and raindrops and thinking that I had superpowers. All that happened and, and at a particular point became overwhelming and I got terrified. No treatment yet? No hospitalizations? Nothing No yet. hospitalization, no treatment. And at that particular point, I was hospitalized. Two years after I had my first experience with mental illness, I was hospitalized. The reason why I share that is because although I had a psychotic break before, neither I nor my parents knew what it was. My parents just thought I was stressed and they sent me to Grenada. They sent me away, not realizing we did not know what it was. It wasn't until that I got hospitalized and I accepted it. It's so I feel really blessed that I understood that there was something wrong immediately. So that spring of 2000, I began taking medication and I began my treatment. This has not been easy, but at that time, there was something that switched on to me that something wrong here. This is not Hakeem. That's when I realized that, but I knew something, there was something amiss with who I was. As soon as I was diagnosed, I began, I accepted and I began a form of treatment like therapy and bed management, taking medication. Did your parents also accept it as easily as you, or did they have a problem, as many families do, in accepting it, either because lack of knowledge or shame? I, I mentioned that my family, both my father had experience with the hospital system. He had kidney disease, and he was hospitalized numerous times, and he had two kidney transplants over the course of his life, and he passed away now six years 
And my mom was a nurse for 38 years. And you never know how things are going to contribute to your life journey. I believe that they had those experiences with the healthcare system. It was like, okay, so Hakeem, this happened last year. We see there's nothing wrong outside, must be something wrong in the inside. And I guess they made that leap and said, you know what, let's take him to the psychiatric hospital. I think because they had that experience with the healthcare system, both as a patient as well as a practitioner, I think there was a level of comfort there that allowed them to just say, you know what, he needs to help, let's just bring him here. Do you think that would have been the same, you said you were from Granada, that culturally there would be more, shall we say, hesitancy or reluctancy to admit to a psychiatric disorder based on your cultural background? It sounds like you were much more Americanized than the, shall I say, average person who still lives in the Caribbean. I think I think I think you bring up do bring up a big point and a huge huge issue I would say in, in communities of color is that we are generally averse to labeling psychiatric illnesses or issues whether saying that you can pray them away or keep everything in the family or minimizing by saying you know oh that's just that's just how he is you know leave him alone give him his time give him his space and he'll be fine but really not understanding and labeling it something that is really serious and I think there's a number of reasons for that why um, what are some of the reasons a huge one is a dependence on on spirituality I think a huge source of comfort has been church and religious institutions, especially for people of color. I mean, there's a high level of trust that people of color have, especially for church, especially, and that's oftentimes the first place that communities of color can turn to for a level of trust, for a level of uh, care and commitment. And there's another layer of mistrust, actually, of healthcare system. If we think back about experiments that have been done on people of color, such as the Tuskegee experiment, which was sanctioned by the federal government, we can think about if this has been done over the course of time and it's built into the system, where can and how can we have a level of understanding and trust, especially for now, a topic that, that is unknown about, even in the broader culture. So not only is there mistrust in the systematic distrust, but there's also a lack of understanding of what that illness is. So it is layers of mistrust as well as layers of comfort of where to get that help. And of course, there are many more reasons, but those are two that I can think of. Here in the United States, and I'm sure elsewhere in the world, there is a huge movement labeled Break the Silence, Learn to Trust That You Are Okay, Don't Be Ashamed of Your Mental Illness, whatever the phraseology is. I don't know that people look at it as closely as you've just tried to explain it insofar as the relationship to spirituality. A a casual listener may say, well, you had mental illness because you sin. And I know many years ago they used to put people in solitary confinement with a Bible. You had enough time in solitary confinement, you'd read the Bible and you'd come to terms with your sins. Sure. Where, if any, does that still play a role or have we moved away from that from your observations? I do speak in faith-based communities. I've spoken at huge churches in Queens, and I've spoken to presbytery conferences. And I think there is, from what I've seen, a move towards acknowledgement that their mental illness does exist. And I have a colleague that we do presentations together. He's actually doing separate research on stigma and treatment and care in faith-based communities. He's doing research in four large churches in the New York City area and how to train ministers on how to recognize mental illness and then provide treatment 
then refer out. I believe there is an acknowledgement, but yes, there's a long way to go in terms of saying that, yes, spirituality is part of treatment, but it is not the only form of treatment. So I think for me, spirituality is very important, but I understand that it is part of a coping mechanism, a coping skill, and not the only thing to rely on. You know, praying away, as I say, you want to pray away diabetes, but mental illness is partly physical. It has a physical component to it. You want to pray away diabetes, so why would you pray away clinical depression or bipolar disorder? So it's really understanding that there's a physicality to mental illness, not only a psychic disorder, but it is a physical component to it. Good point, an excellent point, because your analogy to diabetes is, is important. We don't see diabetes. It doesn't necessarily change behavior in a way that manic and thinking that you need to soak your cereal for 10 minutes has some sort of symbolism. So visually, it has a different gestalt, so to speak. When you speak to these groups, are they mostly teenagers? Are they adults? What's, what's their response? What questions do they come back to you and say, sir, tell me more about this. Tell me more about yeah. that. What's your response to you talking about mental health in an open manner the way you're doing? Sure. I speak to a wide variety of groups everywhere from law enforcement to teenagers to faith-based organizations to people living with mental illness to their family members. And you get a broad range of questions. General questions from young people is, did your friends know? What was it like to go back to college? What did your parents say? How could I help a friend myself? We actually were able to do some research from presentations that I've given in schools, and we were able to do four-week follow-ups, and we were able to show that students were actually going to staff members and teachers because of the presentation. So they were open to asking other questions even when I left the presentation and even when the stigma reduction presentation was over. So those are some of the questions I was getting, and then the students were more open to even talking about it afterwards. Parents often ask about one of the big things that, that really come up are relationships, especially for their children. Is my son or daughter going to be able to have a relationship? Is my son or daughter going to be able to hold a job? What's going to happen when I'm not here? Well, those are some central concerns about caretaking and about really how their loved one is going to do both with job, employment, housing, with their intimate relationships. So there's a genuine concern among parents, like what's going to happen when I'm not there? And teachers have, have concerns about in their classrooms, how can I notice mental illness in my classroom? The thing about it is that there are questions, people are asking them, and people are curious. People are curious about what's going on. We hear about this thing called mental illness, and how do we now address it, and how do we now find education that we need to address it? So there are questions out there, and people are interested, and people are listening. You had a very interesting opportunity to testify in front of a U.S. congressional hearing. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think it was quite an acknowledgement. In 2014, one of my friends from Harvard, he actually completed suicide by, unfortunately, in February of 2014. And I wrote an article for the Harvard Black Alumni newsletter. We were college friends at Harvard University. What struck me about his passing away was that I had one path and he had another path. I went into advocacy and he unfortunately happened to complete suicide. And what struck me about that was that that very well could have been my path and his path and my path could have been his path because we were both 
going through the same experience at the same time, at the same place, yet we never talk about it. We never spoke about our challenges. That really hit me to the core and really, really affected and impacted my work. Now I was moved to share again, now with a broader community, my professional community, my experience with mental illness. And from there, from writing in the newsletter, my friend who worked with a congressman said, you know what, we may need somebody to share their personal story in front of this committee. And this was the Helping Families in Crisis Act bill that I testified for with Congressman Murphy and the Oversight and Investigation Committee. I was able to share my journey and share my story there because of being able to be open about my journey experience. One of the things that just jumps to the top is your comment a minute or two ago that parents were worried if their kids could have a successful life, if they would survive. Obviously, you have. I'm thankful to hear it as just having met you, but I can also imagine you and your family and friends are even more thankful that treatment does work. And it's not 100%. I know we always have to say that and we have more work to do and all those standard little caveats. But the thing is that we are so much better. And listening to you is such a testimony to what good treatment and putting a little energy and time into it can, can, can be productive. It's wonderful. I downloaded the audio testimony before the committee, and I'm going to attach it to the end of this interview. So if people just want to stick around and listen to your actual testimony, it's there. They don't have to go elsewhere. Wonderful. Wonderful. What do you see are some of the larger problems, and I'm hoping, though I know it's not easy, potential solutions to the problems in getting access to mental health care in our country right now? For me, I think one of the biggest things is really acknowledging that stigma and mental illness, mental illness is an illness like any other. That's one of the biggest things I share. If we were able to operate from that basis, that mental illness is no different than any other physical illness. We often say that if that person will feel and embody the fact that if a person has a mental illness, they're outside of the human spectrum of experience and abnormal, when in fact, we're all on a spectrum of mental health, right? And I think if we begin to embrace one, that mental illness is just like any other illness, and it is within the norm of the human experience, we can begin to act with more compassion and understanding that one, yes, we all can experience some form of mental illness. Most of us are one accident or one illness away from an acute crisis, maybe not necessarily a chronic illness, but acute illness. So I think that's the first underlying thing. How do we transform what it means to have a diagnosed mental illness? And I think if we begin to address that stigma, it will begin to reduce the threshold for people actually going to receive treatment and wanting to understand it. But I think at a very core level, it's how we think about it, how we talk about mental illness. At the very first, we have to address that. I agree. I can't offer any countering argument. One of the things that we need to do as advocates for mental illness, and it's always very pathetic and very painful, but is that the notion of mental illness never hits the media until there's something horrific that happens. And the school shootings are often associated either directly or indirectly, properly or improperly, to some mental illness issue. And those poor folks do not represent the average person with mental illness. I, I, That's right. We have to be careful not to, not to generalize. That's right. If 
if I may, I think that the point that we're at now, it's getting so conflated that I heard on NPR they were doing interviews at gun shows, and, and the first thing that people were mentioning is that we don't need stronger gun control laws. We need to control people who may have a diagnosed mental illness. And in fact, people with mental illness, as you already know, are more likely to be the victims of violence as opposed to the perpetrators. And the fact that one out of four adult Americans, maybe more, one out of five adolescents, and I say in my presentations all the time, if one out of five young men or young women were violent, if one out of four adults or men or women were violent, society would crumble. So obviously there's not a direct correlation between a diagnosed mental illness and somebody's level of violence. But I think we have over-associated that. That's, that's for the lack of understanding and the stigma. And I think... And I think until it hits home, and you're right, until it hits home, it's easy to say it's the other. But one of the things I say is that stigma is never about the other. It is about ourselves and how we see ourselves and how we see other people. And until we can have compassion for the others, I think that stigma will continue to, to persist. So true. So very true. Hakeem Rahim is a mental health advocate, but he speaks from two positions. One as just the advocate for a condition that he sees in the world, and probably more powerfully, it is a position that he personally experiences. Sir, thank you so much. This has been very interesting. You're, you're quite welcome. You, sir, are, are truly changing the world. What follows next is the recording from March 26, 2014, the House Subcommittee on Oversight Investigations, which is part of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Mr. Rakim was part of a panel that gave testimony. This is that testimony. Mr. Rahim, you're recognized for five minutes. Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member DeGette, and members of the subcommittee. My journey with mental illness began in 1998 during my freshman year at Harvard University. That fall, I experienced a terrifying panic attack. In that episode, I had heart palpitations, sweaty palms, and dizziness. Yet I did not know it was an anxiety-induced state. What I did know, however, was the deep terror I felt. My journey continued when I had my first manic episode. During the spring of 1999, I roamed the streets of Hempstead, New York, possessed with a prophetic delusion that I had to share with Ed, any and everyone I met. Concerned, my parents sent me to my father's homeland of Grenada to relax and be with family. However, while there, I plunged into a deep depression. I returned to Harvard that fall and struggled through the year battling anxiety and depression. In the spring of 2000, I was consumed by my second manic episode. My next two weeks were filled with sleepless nights and endless, endless riding sessions. I showered less frequently and ate sporadically. During this manic episode, I experienced psychosis. I had visions of Jesus, heard cars talking, and spoke foreign languages. Upon hearing my condition, my parents rushed to pick me up from Harvard's campus. That same evening, my parents decided to take me to a psychiatric hospital in Queens. When we arrived to the emergency room, I was taken to the triage area. Over the next few hours, I was held in a curtain room in the ER. I tossed and turned and remained restless as now I had only slept, I had not slept in 24 hours. My parents sat in the curtain room with me until I was admitted to the hospital later that night. Accompanied by two hospital aides, I was transported to the psychiatric ward in a hospital van. I walked through a dimly lit ward door and was met by approximately six staff members. They gave me a hospital gown, requested that I change into it, and encouraged me to, to relax when I noted my agitated state. They noted my agitated state. When I continued to toss, the staff stated that they were going to put straps around my arms and legs. After placing the straps, they then said they were going to give me a sedative to help me sleep. I felt a prick in my upper arm. The next morning I awoke, drowsy and unable to speak. I walked to the common room of the ward. I sat down and began to hold my breath. 
I received another sedative. I was hospitalized for two weeks. The first week is a blur due to my mental confusion and the psychiatric medication administered to me. However, I do remember some of my experiences. I interacted frequently with staff and the other patients. One staff member I felt an affinity towards and, he sp and spoke with him frequently. He advised me to focus on getting better and not to come back to the hospital as so many other patients had. My psychiatrist on the ward diagnosed me with bipolar disorder and I briefly explained it, and briefly explained that I would be on several medications. Upon my release from the hospital, I found and met a psychiatrist in Brooklyn. During my hospitalization, I accepted my illness and began my arduous road to recovery. Cannot pinpoint what triggered me to, to my immediate acceptance, but I'm grateful that it did not take years for me to obtain insight. Over the course of my 16-year journey with mental illness, I have simultaneously embraced my diagnosis and realized that I'm more than a label. I've embraced that I am more than medication, therapist appointments, and support groups. I've learned that I'm not bipolar, I'm Hakeem Rahim, not just one piece of my and not just one piece of my treatment regimen. At the same time, I've learned a good treatment regimen has to be accompanied by positive coping skills, diet, exercise for brain health, along with spirituality and spiritual perspective. Spiritual perspective. The biggest challenge I faced to getting where I am today was openly acknowledging my mental illness. For so long, I felt a deep and personal shame for having bipolar disorder. This shame was so entrenched that I felt uncomfortable sharing my diagnosis with close friends and even family members. In 2012, I decided to speak openly and join NAMI's Inner Own Voice program. Through the Inner Own Voice program, I have shared my story with over 600 people, including individuals living with mental illness and their family members. Currently, I'm the NAMI Queens National Let's Talk Mental Illness presenter. Through the Let's Talk Mental Owners program, I've shared my story and provided much needed awareness to over 5,000 high school students and middle school students at 37 schools. I see the importance in and will continue to speak up for mental health and mental illness education in schools and beyond. Millions of people in America desire to give voice to their struggles but cannot because of stigma. I'm fueled by the desire to break the silence. I'm inspired by students who want to learn about mental illness to help a friend or a struggling parent who is hurting. I'm strengthened by people who have decided to out themselves in an effort to normalize mental illness. Mental illness, education, and awareness is essential to combat stigma, end suffering, and normalize seeking help. I'm grateful to my parents, family, and loved ones who have supported me. I'm also grateful for this committee for picking up this topic and as well as this panel, because I believe it's my hope that the ideas put forward today, with forward my, today, put forward today, will transform the ready shifting conversation around mental illness. And I thank you very much. Right, I got to ask you, Mr. Rahim, because you have Ms. Ashley at the table here, who has a son with who is a, a good man that was schizophrenia. You have advice for parents and for other people dealing with this. Um, I believe that. Um, Dr. Evans said it best, is that mental illness is treatable, and I think uh, a lot of the panel said mental illness is treatable, but I think we have to have the education to know that it is treatable and that it is um, something that you can overcome. And I think um, having faces as well as um, as, as these evidence-based practices will, will do so much. Um, and Thank you. you know, I do think. That's a good message of hope. I just want to finish up with you, Mr. Rahim. Um, you heard what Ms. Ashley was talking about. Her son was denying what was happening and she had to sort of trick him. Um, 
what do you what do you think about um, people who get diagnosed with these diseases? Is it the stigma? Is it the nature of the disease? And what's your opinion? What we can do to get folks into treatment like like you were able to do and to accept the disease? Very briefly. So I have I have very much recognize that mental illness is individual to each person. There's so many different diagnoses, and each person, even with the same diagnoses, responds differently to the medication. Responds differently to the knowledge that they may even have it, or even responds differently to their parents' care and concern. So, I mean, with that, and I, and I do want to acknowledge that I'm not I'm voice, but I'm not the only voice, and there's so many people out there. So, I just want to acknowledge that to your point that it's it's so different and it's hard. Um, this is hard. You know, this, yeah. this is not easy. So, even if you have the care provided, it's still a journey. One and two, you still have to recognize that everybody's different. I recognize the Vice Chair of this subcommittee, uh, Dr. Burgess, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Heem, I just have to say, I, I don't think it was part of your prepared remarks, but your comments about the individualization of care and the personalization of care, that is, uh, I mean, I, I, those words are golden, and I, I hope that uh, everyone this dais heard those and, and will consider them. Well, thank you all, and um, Mr. Rahim, too, and, and Ms. Ashley, for your personal stories. So important for us to hear because we need to understand how we can deal with this situation better. And, and again, thank you to all of you. This has been a very, very good subcommittee hearing, and I'm hoping that we will really be able to fix this problem. Thank you. I yield back. Mr. Rahim, you want to comment on that? Again, thank you so much for, for giving um, patients voice. And I think a couple of words, I, I know um, Mr. Dart talked about enlightenment, but I think enlightenment means compassion, dignity, and education. So I think each of us has a, a, an ability to be compassionate in our roles. We have the ability to treat each patient as an individual and with dignity. And I think through contact with people who, who are doing well, and then that follow-up education as a, as, a, as a foundation and groundwork, we can do so much good. So I, I do thank you again. Thank you. Uh, I know you're all passionate about this, uh, but I hope you energize your own members of Congress as well to help them understand the importance of moving forward on this. Um, even though you spoke for five minutes and you added a few minutes to other things, oftentimes people go through life and wonder if their voice makes a difference. It does. Yours does, and it will continue to echo throughout the House of Representatives in this nation. So I, I thank you a great deal uh, for all that uh, and recognize that um, Mr. Rahim, I think, and others who use the word hope, uh, where there's no help there is no hope and we will make sure we continue to work on that help